This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Damien Carrick with you. Secret evidence. How can you win a court battle if you're not allowed to see the evidence used against you? He said, the government has concluded that I'm a security risk. I don't think that's right, but I can't tell you exactly why the government got it wrong because I don't know why the government's reached that conclusion. Well, the High Court has ruled that secret evidence is fair. That's coming up. On Sunday evening, a delegation of United Nations experts suspended its visit to Australia's detention facilities. Our prisons, youth detention centres, immigration detention centres and secure mental health facilities. The head of the four-member team from the UN Subcommittee on Prevention of Torture is Justice Aisha Shujun Mohammed. She's a judge of the Supreme Court of the Maldives. Justice Mohammed is giving her first interview since arriving in Australia to the Law Report. She wants to make it clear that her delegation, which each year visits a number of countries under the UN's Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture, or OPCAT, does not have any kind of inspection, investigation or oversight role. We look at essentially systems in place and advise the state party where there are risks of torture or treatment, what needs to be tweaked, what needs to be brought in, what are the procedural safeguards, etc. So you've decided to suspend the visit. Why? Any given state party, including Australia, has promised by virtue of ratifying OPCAT that it will give us unfettered access to places of deprivation of liberty, to people in those facilities, and to documentation relating to those people and those facilities. So when this mandate of the SPT is obstructed and we expect that unfettered access be granted in full, then that means our visit is then compromised. We've been undertaking visits for 15 years. We've done 81 visits so far across the world, and this is only the fourth time that we have had to suspend a visit. We'll come back to those three other occasions in a moment. So as I understand it, uh, you were blocked from accessing prison facilities in New South Wales, uh, police cells at the Queanbeyan Courthouse, uh, the Silverwater Correctional Complex and the Mary Wade Correctional Complex in Lidcombe. And also in Queensland, while you were allowed access to prisons, you were prevented from inspecting inpatient units or or people with mental health issues uh, kept in sort of secure mental health health facilities. Is that right? One of the cornerstones of our work is confidentiality. And this is the basis on which the SPT is granted access to all these places and people and documentation. So the visit has only been suspended. We are still bound by confidentiality. And I am therefore unable to disclose that information. And have you also been denied access to certain types of information as well as denied access to certain facilities? That would be correct. Did you get full access to all requested facilities which are under federal control? I can confirm that. 
What assurance did assurances did the UN team receive about access to facilities ahead of their arrival to Australia? What what arrangements had been in place, and and how different was the reception you received from what you expected? Well, it did come as a surprise to us. Um, that is not something I will hide. We did receive credentials. We had focal points designated, and. We were informed that where focal points were not designated, that it will be forthcoming. So we really did not expect this from Australia. Now, if you received cooperation from federal places of detention and from other state and territory governments, why not continue with the tour, given you had access to detention centres in most parts of the country? I'm thinking, what calculation do you make before you decide to pull the plug? OPCAT applies to the state of Australia, and we see the state party as being Australia as a country. We do not see federal states and territories separately. It's one entity in our eyes. Say, for example, in Brazil, they have 26 states. It's a federation, and SPT has undertaken visits to Brazil and concluded it successfully. So while the federal argument is put forth where we are not given unfettered access, which means unfettered access to all places of deprivation of liberty in the broad sense of the word, and people and documentation and irrespective of whether that happens in parts of the country or in the country as a whole, we see that as a obstruction to our mandate. And this is only the fourth time that a tour has been suspended. What are the other countries where there's been a suspension? Before Australia, there had been three suspensions, Azerbaijan in 2014, Ukraine in 2016, Rwanda in 2017. Two of these suspensions, the visits resumed soon after, but one got terminated on the grounds of systemic non-cooperation. So what I'm saying is essentially by suspending, there is still the possibility of resuming the visit in due course, of course, but SPT has to be given assurances of unfettered access and only then will it resume the visit. Where these assurances are not provided within reasonable time, we have the option of terminating the visit and the result of that would be termination and publication of the report. So you're telling me that um, we could still be in the company of Azerbaijan and Ukraine as opposed to the company of Rwanda if the talks continue and the suspension is not turned into a, uh, a termination? It has the potential of resumption, the visit, but if it can be terminated, and I hope it doesn't come to that, should assurances not be provided in due course. And how quickly do you need those talks to straighten things out and recommence the tour? What's the time frame for that before you press the red button and uh, the termination button? It varies, obviously, and I am unable to give you a time frame as of now. This will be discussed at our session in November, and that is when 
the plenary of the SPT will decide what will happen and the timeline. If I can come back to the position of, of the states, New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet, he refuted the idea that this was a bad look to block access to your delegation, saying that his state already has you know, very sophisticated accountability mechanisms. He has an ombudsman, a custodial inspector, and he said he had concerns about uh, safety and operational matters surrounding your visit, um, around costs of facilitating the delegation's visit, and the bigger costs of implementing any recommendations or responding to any findings of the delegation. How would you respond to those concerns or that uh, th- th- those reservations about your tour? First of all, I should say that the visit of SPT is not at cost to Australia or any of its states or territories. It is at our cost that we are undertaking this visit. Secondly, it is unfortunate. I do not wish to necessarily rebut anything anyone has said, but I see that as a lack of understanding of what the SPT does, because what we do and what we do in confidence, because we do not undertake complaints. We're not an oversight mechanism. We're not an inspector. We're not a investigator and because we look at systems in place and we do this in a confidential manner and with the state party and I really do see this as a lack of understanding of what we do. I'll put to you one other quote. The New South Wales Corrections Minister Jeff Lee said in a media interview, The role of our jail system is to keep people safe, protect us from criminals that we lock up every day. It is not to allow people to wander through at their leisure. And, quote, they should be off to Iran looking for human rights violations there. How would you respond to that idea that, um, you know, there are places where perhaps there's a greater need for delegations such as yours to visit? How would you respond to that idea? As you know, in the realm of international law, All countries are reviewed periodically and they are held accountable for their human rights records. And when the question why Australia and not any other country, at least to me, it appears that it's a tactic to deflect on its own international obligations. You have to understand that Australia ratified OPCAT on its own accord. And I saw from the Commonwealth Attorney General's press statements that no state or territory objected to ratification at the time of ratification. So this obviously comes as a surprise to us. Well, interesting, you mentioned the Attorney General's statement there. He sort of said, look, it's a shame that the tour has been suspended, but it doesn't alter Australian government's commitments to promoting and protecting human rights domestically and internationally, and it won't resile from efforts to raise global human rights standards and hold others to account. I'm wondering how that ability to raise human rights standards and hold others to account will be impacted by this decision to suspend the tour? I would think that that is a perception of state parties in the global fora and not for us to comment on for one. But Australia does need to step up to its international obligations. Perhaps um, other countries uh, will say, well, why should we comply with uh, global human rights standards set out by the UN if Australia doesn't come to the party? Well, I suppose Australia should walk the talk. 
who do you hold most responsible for the, the failure of the tour? Is it the state governments who have denied you access or do you think that there are issues around uh, what the federal government should have done over the last few years since it, it adopted the protocol? For us, Australia is the state party. And for us, it's one entity we don't see the federal states and territories separately to that. For us, the position of the SPT is this is a failure of Australia. And it's, I suppose, attributed to all states and territories in that respect. Do you think that sometimes there are difficulties, though, which are which exist in good faith? Uh, I'm thinking the Queensland government said that it wouldn't provide access to mental health facilities because it was not allowed to do so under state legislation. How would you respond to, to, to those sorts of limitations which were placed on your tour? The Vienna Convention on the Law of the Treaties is explicit in saying that a state may not invoke provisions of domestic law as justification for its failure to perform a treaty obligation. Second, the OPCAT itself states that it applies to the state party, including federal territories, without limitation or exception. What you need to understand is when we undertake our visits and we talk to people, we don't take names, we don't look at medical records unless absolutely necessary for prevention and where it's only required for identifying systemic gaps and shortcomings. Our work is grounded on confidentiality and that's something we take very seriously. So denying access to SPT on the grounds of privacy laws has very little legal justification for us when we look at it from a human rights international law perspective. Additionally, Australia had ratified the OPCAT in 2017. It's 2022 today. These issues should have been identified and they should have been addressed. There was concern expressed around security and practicality. You wanted access to, to prisoners in their cells without handcuffs um, and being allowed to, to carry mobile phones inside prisons. And, and that seemed to be a, a matter of uh, enormous concern to the New South Wales government. I'm wondering, has this type of access led to security or safety concerns in previous tours in other countries? It should be understood that we don't carry mobile phones. We don't carry guns. We don't carry any of... The only thing we carry is our notebook and pen and perhaps a water bottle and identification and we wear the UN vest. We don't carry any of those things. Perhaps one of us may have some measuring equipment to measure humidity, etc. That's all we carry. In Australia and elsewhere, we talk to prisoners usually in their own cells without anybody around. And that has not had any incident, never, not in Australia, not elsewhere, have we encountered any incident. So I am unsure as to what the security concerns are.
So in, in 81 tours by this delegation, there haven't been sort of serious security or, or dangerous situations occur. So, so for you, it's a, it's a strange thing to hear from the New South Wales government. There have been no serious or other security incidents. We have been to war zones. We have been to places where there have been civil war, etc. None of the places have we had to face any such security concern. And we explained this very well throughout our visit, before we started, during our visit. And it was something we had been explaining throughout. So this is why we say that, unfortunately, despite everything that has been done, at least from our part, our mandate is not understood. And you should understand that when we speak to people, we seek their consent, the consent of the person who is detained before entering their cells. And it is only if they're comfortable in their willing that we will actually undertake that. But we do not seek the permission of the authorities because we have that power by and mandate by virtue of OPCAT. Why we ask or seek the consent of the detainee is that our work is based on human rights principles. The basis is respect to the detainees. As a matter of practicality, how do you choose which prisoner to speak to? I'm wondering how do you decide what cell door to knock on? I'm, I'm wondering how that works. It would be random. Sometimes we have, depending on the type of place, there could be other considerations. Say, for example, we may speak to the person who's been there the longest or the person who's been there the shortest. It, it depends, but it's all random. And we also speak, speak to those who wish to speak to us. Justice Aisha Shujun Mohammed, uh, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. You're most welcome. Justice Mohammed, the head of the delegation from the UN Subcommittee on Prevention of Torture that has suspended its visit to Australia. Damien Carrick with you. You're listening to The Law Report on RN. And the program is, of course, also available anytime via the ABC Listen app. In a court or tribunal hearing, can one side use secret evidence that the other side can't see? Well, in a 4-3 decision, the High Court has said yes. And it's rejected the idea that there is some minimum standard of procedural fairness which would prevent this from happening. The case involved someone known only as SDCV. David Hume is a Sydney barrister. David Hume joins me now. David, who is SDCV? We only know him by the initials SDCV, but he was a Lebanese citizen. He was married to an Australian citizen and for some years he'd held a partner visa. He then applied for Australian citizenship and his application for citizenship of Australia was approved. Now, in order to become an Australian citizen, you actually need to attend a citizenship ceremony. You're not a citizen until you go to that ceremony. And before he could attend his ceremony, he started being investigated by ASIO. ASIO learned that he had some male relatives connected with a terrorist organisation, ISIL, and he also seems to have had a relative who was convicted of a terrorism offence in Australia. 
shortly before his citizenship ceremony, he was told, your ceremony is going to be delayed because we're investigating you. And then in August 2018, ASIO concluded that he was a risk to the security of Australia and recommended that his visa was cancelled. And this was the beginning of the issue, but ultimately got to the High Court. And we'll talk about that legal decision shortly. But what does the publicly available summary of the adverse security assessment say? What ASIO told him was that they thought that he had supported terrorism and a terrorist organisation and also that he'd used what they called tradecraft, like a, a covert phone or a burner phone, when he was communicating with people who ASIO thought were of security concern. But what they didn't tell him was the basis on which they'd reached those conclusions. So they told him, we think you're a security risk, but didn't tell him the actual evidence and reasons that they'd relied on. And why might they not do that? Why would it be something that they would want to keep secret? It's likely that ASIO thought that that should be kept secret because the conclusions were based on informants' information and that by giving details of the reasons they would disclose ASIO informants. So somebody perhaps in his community or family who is reporting back to authorities about him. That's so. And not knowing the contents of the adverse security assessment means that in some ways he's fighting with his hands tied behind his back in the sense that he can't say, no, that's wrong or argue that that's wrong or that's incorrect. That was exactly his argument. When he got to court, he said, the government has concluded that I'm a security risk. I don't think that's right, but I can't tell you exactly why the government got it wrong because I don't know why the government's reached that conclusion. Okay, so so he appeals his decision. It goes to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, then up to the Federal Court, then up to the High Court. Does that tribunal and does that court, does that see all the evidence? Does that see what's in the adverse security assessment? Yes, so in this case, both the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and the Federal Court had before them and looked at all of the evidence that the government had relied on. But at both of those stages, the Tribunal and the Court did not give that information to SDCV. The government, who was represented both in the Tribunal and the Federal Court, had that information and made submissions on the basis of it. But in... uh, instances where SDCV was not present in the tribunal and the court when the government was making those submissions. So the tribunal and the full federal court are kind of saying, we've seen the information, we're okay with it, and we're not going to find in your favour. And then it goes to, to the high court. What does the high court find on this big question about whether or not secret evidence can be used in this kind of decision-making process? Well, the High Court decided, and it was very close, it was a 4-3 decision, the High Court decided that this was something that the Federal Court could do. The Federal Court can look at secret evidence that's not given to the applicant and make a decision on that basis. They said that the Constitution does not prohibit that course. And what does the minority say? I mean, I think there are three judges in the minority. We can't go through all three of them, but what was the gist of, of what they had to say? So the the gist of the the minority's decisions were, first, we think that 
secret evidence or, or closed evidence, as it's often called, is highly constitutionally undesirable because it breaches a basic tenet of procedural fairness, which is that you should know the information that's being relied on against you. And the second thing they said was the problem with this law is that it doesn't allow the courts to decide what's fair in the circumstances of the particular case. So if the court thinks that it's fair and appropriate to give the appellant this information, the court can't give effect to that view. And that, the majority said, is constitutionally impermissible. In contrast, the majority, the four who found uh, for the government and against this man, said that, look, he had not experienced any practical disadvantage. There's no, he's not fighting with his hands uh, tied behind his back, essentially. The heart of the majority's decision was this thinking. They said the appellant, SDCV, had a few options available to him. And the option that he chose was to go to the federal court using a, a scheme where the federal court could look at the information, the secret or closed information, but having looked at it, could not disclose it to SDCV. And the joint judgment said, well, if you want to use a scheme where the court can look at the secret information but not disclose it to you, you've got to take the burden with the benefit. Or to put it colloquially, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Look, I'm wondering, what's your view of this decision by the court and where they have decided the balance should lie in terms of open justice versus secret evidence? I think that this was a very difficult case. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for the views on both sides and the fact that it was a 4-3 decision which is quite unusual in a constitutional context, shows that this was obviously considered by the court to be a very difficult case. I understand that in criminal law cases, we do have something like a special advocate, a defence lawyer with security clearance who is trusted to be privy to information that they will guarantee that they will not pass on to their client. I'm wondering if those sorts of mechanisms might work in these kinds of contexts. Yes, that was certainly something the court looked at and they did identify a few things that could be done to reduce the unfairness of secret information. One thing that I looked at was what is called gisting, or sometimes called gisting, which is to give the, in this case, SDCV, the gist of the secret information being relied on, but not the specifics. And that reduces the procedural unfairness because, you know, you have a general sense of what's being relied on, but obviously it doesn't alleviate it entirely because often the devil is in the detail. The second option they considered was appointing a special advocate, which is a person who is an officer of the court who can look at the information, isn't formally representing the affected party, in this case SDCV, um, but can nevertheless make submissions in the interests of that person. And another option they considered was saying to the government, well, if you want to rely on that information, we're going to make it a condition of you relying on it that you disclose some or all of it to the applicant. There were different views in the court as to whether those mechanisms were available in this case, and it led to um, some disagreement. 
but they're all mechanisms that might theoretically be available in other cases to reduce procedural unfairness. This is such a conundrum. I mean, this is such a, a fundamental public policy conundrum here, secret evidence versus open justice. It, it, it's, a, it's a fundamental issue, isn't it? It is. And this case, as I said, goes to show that there are real difficulties in, in drawing the line and there are strongly held views, legitimately held views on, on either side. David Hume, Sydney Barrister, uh, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report, a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Tammy. That's The Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer this week, Tim James. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.